0: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Prudential's 4040
2: Vision, a multimedia microsite exploring what life and the future looks like to today's 40-somethings. Hear what inspires real people, the hopes they have for tomorrow, and much more. See yourself in their stories at slate.com forward slash 4040vision forward slash family. And by Club W leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com forward slash culture. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin
0: here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes.
3: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen McCaff and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Ah Aliens, Ah Humanity edition. It's Wednesday, October 28th, 2015. On today's show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a new TV show on The CW. It's dark, it's weird, it's a musical comedy, it's true. And then, has NASA discovered evidence of a super-advanced alien race? The internet says, yay, the naysayers say, nay, but some serious people are saying, hmm. We'll discuss with Phil Plate, key <laughs> of the wonderful, bad astronomy column for Slate. I love it when I crack you up during the introduction.
2: <laughs> I
4: want all of your introductions to be couched in utterances. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> and finally Bartleby the Scrivener the classic short story by Herman Melville is about the nature of human inscrutability and the power of simply saying no has Slate done it any favors by annotating it we'll discuss with Slate's own Andrew Kahn joining me today is the Bobbyist of Poobas at Slate its editor-in-chief Julia Turner hello Julia
4: hi Steve
3: are you the Bobbyist?
4: On my better
2: days. <laughs> <laughs> or the pooh bariest, one of the two. <laughs> Those are the other days.
3: <laughs> I would say you're pooh-bobbier than Swansburg, but somewhat still less pooh-bobby than um, Jake Weisberg. But anyway, we'll leave that to the scientists to decide. Um, and, of course, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Julia, before we dig in, do we have business?
4: Yeah, Steve, I have some business. So first I wanted to mention that on our Slate Plus Segment We will be discussing libations at the request of a listener and our particular drinks. And I also wanted to remind our listeners about two upcoming shows. There are a very few tickets left for our live show in San Francisco on Sunday, November 8th. We cannot wait to see you guys out there. Also, we are doing Super Fest on Broadway. The Slate Culture Gab Fest, that's us, the Political Gab Fest, you know them, and the guys from Hang Up and Listen will be joining Dan Quayle on stage for a Slate podcast extravaganza at Town Hall on Monday, November 16th. And also as a special thank you to our Slate Plus members, each show at the Superfest, the Culture Gab Fest, the Political Gab Fest, and Hang Up and Listen, will each be raffling off a basket of very cool swag that we've curated ourselves. So if you are a Slate Plus member, make sure you sign up. Just email superfestraffle at gmail.com with your name to be entered. And if you're not, you can sign up at slate.com slash plus for just 5 bucks a month or $50 a year to become a member. You'll also get a special feed of all of our podcasts along with the bonus segments that we make for members of Slate Plus. All right, Steve,
3: let's give it a whirl. Mm, Thanks, Julie. All right, moving on. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a one-hour musical dramedy about a successful young Manhattan lawyer who chucks it all to follow her soulmate out to West Covina, California. The twist is that she and her supposed soulmate barely ever dated. It's been 10 years, and he's at best dimly aware of her existence. The show stars and is also co-created by Rachel Bloom. Let's listen to a clip.
0: Good morning, sir. See the sparkle off the concrete ground Hear the whoosh of the bustling town What a feeling of love in my gut I'm falling faster than the middle school's music program was cut the People dine at Shea Applebee ah. And the sky seems to smile at me It's all new, but I have no fear see this. And also by coincidence,
2: Josh Just happens to be here
3: Dana, the critics seem to like this one. It's poignant and weird, which means um, I like it. Um, What do you think of it?
2: Yeah, poignant, poignant, and weird are good descriptors. I just I have to say, hearing the, the the bars of that song, which was I think the first song, it was the first song in the first episode, right? It was the first moment that you became aware the show was a musical. And because of my gloriously inadequate preparation, I had no idea the show was a musical. I just thought it was a new comedy that we were going to talk about. <laughs> so that was such a glorious moment of surprise when a huge production number suddenly burst out of nowhere in the first ten minutes of the first episode, and the show pretty much had me from there. I mean, you could you know you could quibble about the characterization. But I mean, it's just so unfamiliar. And I love that about it. And I love the energy that that Rachel Bloom brings to this completely strange and in many ways, sort of pathetic character who she makes very endearing nonetheless.
3: Julia, I want to know what you thought of it, but also um, what do we know about Rachel Bloom? She seems to be a magnificent talent at the center of this um, oddity.
2: Yeah, well, she's
4: one of those people who made a name for herself on YouTube. She created a bunch of interesting YouTube musical numbers and attracted the attention of Aline Brush McKenna, who, among other things, was the writer of The Devil Wears Prada. And they partnered up and developed a show for Showtime, which passed, and then it ended up on The CW as a network mate of Jane the Virgin uh, and a pairing with Jane the Virgin, the show, the similarly weird, quirky kind of mock telenovela that we uh, talked about when it debuted last year and that went on to win uh wide acclaim, some Golden Globes and a decent audience. But yeah, she's very much her own self-made talent and the show has been built around her and I'm so into it. <laughs> liked it. It just is so... The pilot is just great. The pilot is one of those bits of culture where you're like, I can't believe somebody made this and mm-hmm. I get to watch it. Yep. And even where it's imperfect, it's so... Goofy and sure of itself, and so sure of itself being something so different from anything anyone else is doing that it's utterly captivating. I've watched all three of the episodes that have aired so far, so captivated was I and I will say as it goes on, it gets like a the machinery of it is not completely ticking yet, so much is built around her charisma, her weirdness, her oddity, and then the show kind of realizes that. It's an hour-long comedy, which is unusual for comedies, and they kind of have to—it does make nice room for the musical numbers, but they kind of have to build out the world a little bit, and so in the third Mm. episode, we go home with her, you know, paralegal-slash-best friend at the new kind of two-bit law firm that she's joined as she moves to West Covina, California, and there's a whole plot line at home where you meet the husband and the kids, and you're like, oh, right, we don't—you cannot actually carry an hour-long show just by the sheer charisma of this one woman— so I think we'll see how the plot machinery comes together, but I'm still pretty, pretty wooed. Yeah, I think thing. another another story mm-hmm.
2: problem will need to be addressed. And I've only seen the first two is that Josh Chan, her love object, he's kind of deliberately blank, right? The idea is that he's kind of a little bit of a muscle bound nobody. He seems perfectly nice, but there's absolutely no reason to hang all these romantic dreams on him, which is, of course, part of the point. But it means that that relationship that isn't in essence, the driver for the entire show doesn't have that much substance to oh, it. Oh, but it's clearly not the driver for the entire show because she's going to fall for his sardonic friend. Right. Well, of course, there's the, mm-hmm. there's the yeah. best friend who she should be with, right? The guy, the, the bartender who she actually should be with. But in, in a way, though, I guess I would say that at least the two episodes I've seen probably are more about female relationships than male ones, both the office mate that she builds up this friendship with and then the girlfriend, the current girlfriend of Josh Chan, who's this kind of passive-aggressively perfect yoga instructor. And there's a great song in the second episode mm-hmm. about her, her yoga skills and how she rubs them in all her students' faces. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I have to say, I really like this show. It's really nervy. It's really strange. I Loved it right from the get go, in part because it's also very sad. It's about a person who's possibly a broken human being. And she has a mother who both made and destroyed her, which comes out in the first scene.
2: Who you never see, at least so far. The mother is just a voice on an answering machine.
3: Yeah, exactly. But is a huge omnipresence nonetheless in the show. I love the um, the huge musical number in the pilot of her getting her uh, about her getting ready for her date, um, which features her rap star. <laughs> who utters the single funniest line in the history of American television, I'm gonna go apologize to some bitches. You gotta watch that sequence and see why it's so funny. I mean, it's truly, like, it's that was genius. Like, I took off my headphones and said to my wife, this is the rare thing I think you just have to watch. Um, But here's a question. Are there at all, Julia, complicated, interesting politics about the title of the show and what it implies?
4: You know, a few critics pointed out that there have been various shows that have attempted to reclaim uh, bad words for women and that it has not often gone well for those shows. So Trophy Wives was another admired sitcom that went by the wayside uh, because of its albatross of a name. I think there's a reclamation project here. You know, the notion is that she's by definition a crazy ex-girlfriend because she's like disrupted her entire life and turned down a lucrative and insane job to move to this unremarkable town on the pursuit of a crush from when she was 15. But the show also posits that unhappiness is kind of a good reason to blow up your life and do something crazy. So I think the show is sincerely interrogating the craziness of craziness and what it means to be crazy and making you sympathize with a woman who is ostensibly crazy and realize that, in fact, she is a little bit crazy, but she's also deeply human and
2: charming. I like it. I, th- I think I like it. I think it's all right. The title, you mean? Yeah. Well, you know, Aline Brosh McKenna and Rachel Bloom have said that, that they deliberately called it crazy ex-girlfriend and not my crazy ex-girlfriend, right? That it's not from the point of view of the ex that we're supposed to construe this woman. I don't know. It seems to me like you only have to watch one episode of the show to see that it's not misogynistic or, you know, stereotyping of women in the least. In fact, it's a mm-hmm. pretty feminist document.
3: I agree. But, Dan, I have a question for you. We're very curious about your answer. At one point in her, I believe, her first musical number, where she bursts into song all of a sudden, it is a moment when you suspect she... In fact, I wrote in my notebook as I was watching it, man, this country is having a nervous breakdown, and this is a very funny way of enacting it, right? A kind of almost Busby Berkeley-esque musical number, and then she begins to say, I'm not having a nerve, and she cuts herself off. She won't say, sing the phrase, I'm not having a nervous breakdown. She won't even make the denial. It's such a dangerous thought. Do the musical numbers, in the pilot, you could argue that all of the musical numbers align with moments in which she might be having something of a psychotic break, which I thought was a really, really daring place to go with the show. To those of you who've seen more than the pilot, does that persist? And do you think that that might be something this the show is playing with mental illness in a really interesting, possibly radioactive way?
4: I don't know. The, it, in the subsequent episodes, other characters get musical numbers. So the yoga teacher girlfriend gets a number in episode three, Actually the two big numbers are from Paula, the paralegal best friend, and Josh gets a Josh himself gets a boy band number that's pretty charming. But are they in
3: her are they in her imagination of the person?
4: Yes. It's plausible that yes they are. I, I think it's probably open for debate. Paula, I think, is the one mm-hmm. who most seems in on the crazy and susceptible The workmate. Yeah, susceptible to her own brand of crazy. But the yoga teacher and the Josh songs do not seem to be positing anybody's actual version of themselves, but more Rebecca Bunch's version of them.
2: Well, that in itself is a great joke yeah. about musicals. The idea that you know anyone who suddenly bursts into song in a musical is mm-hmm. arguably having a psychotic break, right? So this show is yes. kind of owning it. <laughs> well, you do see her, her wash her pills down the drain, right? When she moves to Wiscovina, she makes the yes. never smart move of dumping out all of her psychiatric medication. And then there's in, in one of the, I don't think it's in a song, I think it's in dialogue, but there's a little glancing reference to her having suicidal thoughts and thereby getting her father to give her money for the move. <laughs> so I think it's in yeah. a similar way to maybe the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which we talked about, this show is taking these, you know, these dips into despair and using them for humor, but, you know, not necessarily making light or, or mocking. I, I, I wouldn't think that, I don't know, maybe if, if someone with an actual mental illness who's on psychiatric drugs watched this show, they would be offended by it. But it, I, don't, oh, I, don't, I don't
3: think they would be.
4: Either. But I
2: don't think they would either. Yeah, that's my feeling.
4: I didn't take those drugs to be like antipsychotic medications of the sort that it's unwise to go off, but more to be like... Lots of Xanax and Ambien and more of the numb yourself out of your horrible existence type drugs. I I imagined them or construed them to be like the usual combination of uppers and downers that one would be better off without.
3: There are little hints, though. There are little hints. She, She looks up at the billboard and the billboard suddenly, the little arrow inset in the billboard suddenly tilts down to the boyfriend in the street. It's it's playing with something, I think, a little more dangerous, but maybe I'm wrong.
2: Yeah, I think maybe you're right, Steve. Maybe there's something more
4: interesting going
2: on. You know, just one more thing I wanted to mention about this show, because we were talking about its its pedigree and, the you know, the various influences that have gone into it. Along with Rachel Bloom, one of the composers of the music is Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne. And I just had to name check him because I barely know Fountains of Wayne's music, although I like what I've heard. But I think of Adam Schlesinger as the great writer of fake songs for movies about musicians. There's several movies. The only one mm. I can think of right now is Music and Lyrics with Hugh Grant and yes, Drew Barrymore. Yes, I think we talked about that. And, that uh, and I remember seeing it and spoiling it with Jodie Rosen, who loves Fountains of Wayne, and... And and just remarking on this song, the whole movie music and lyrics is is centered around this songwriting duo, right, who fall in love and out of love, Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore. It's a really good romantic comedy. But what really makes it work is that the songs they write together and the old song that Hugh Grant's old 80s band is famous for that he's trying to make a comeback from – are really good. They're excellent songs that stay in your mind for mm-hmm. weeks after you see the movie. He's just, he's a really bouncy songwriter. I don't know if it was more that he was the lyricist or the, me- or the melody writer or if the two of them worked together, but he and Rachel Bloom really make some nice melodies together.
4: Yeah, I mean, to the degree that they're going to have to churn out an incredible number of these songs, I, I felt happy knowing that his talents were on board. I'm not sure if he was involved for the pilot, but I will say that that first song, that Wes Covina song, has been in my head since I watched the pilot. Like, my husband and I have just been singing Wes Covina, California <laughs> constantly.
2: I've been singing the yoga song.
3: Dana, that's a great catch. Um, Fountains of Wayne, amazing. All right, the show is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's on the CW. Check it out. Tell us what you think. We all love it totally unanimously. Maybe you do, too. Maybe you don't. Uh, come to Facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you think.
4: Can I also make just a slight beg here? Like this show I don't I feel like we don't typically do this, but the show has terrible ratings and it is a show that seems like it's a miracle that it exists and it probably will not exist for long unless more people watch it. So if this conversation has moved you, go check it out relatively soonish because it it is not it does not seem to be picking up mass adoration, at least yet.
3: Mm. Yeah, the three of us rarely pound the table in unison, but today we did. So, yeah, check it out. All right, moving on. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
4: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Prudential. Today's 40-somethings are charting their own courses, sometimes by choice, but many times out of necessity, caring for aging parents, starting new careers midlife, juggling today's financial realities with planning for retirement. Prudential's 4040 Vision brings these challenges and others into sharper focus through real-life interviews and commentary from 40-somethings, plus a compelling four-part podcast on first-time parenthood in your 40s with radio and television personality Faith Saley. Be sure to experience it all at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. All right, Steve, what's next?
3: All right, Julia, thanks. Moving on. All right, well, um, no doubt I'm going to misspeak over and over and over again, but hopefully I'll be corrected at the end of this introduction by Phil Plate, our guest. But diving right in, put as simply as I can do it, we observe super distant stars, then watch as they dim. If they dim periodically, that is at regular intervals, we know the dimming is caused by an orbiting body, and we can begin to guess its size and what it is. The dimming is typically very mild. A planet the size of Jupiter would produce a 1% light diminution, or roughly that, But recently, NASA's Kepler telescope started observing a dimming happening around a star about 1500 light years away. And here's the thing. It's not periodic and it's massive. It's also asymmetrical. The drop in light has been recorded as high as 22%. So that's 22 Jupiters at least. As I said, it's asymmetrical. It doesn't appear to be a spherical object at all. So the question is, what is this? And this has led to at least some semi-serious speculation that it might be an alien superstructure. To walk and talk us through the line separating science fact. From science fiction, we're joined by Phil Plate, who writes the wonderful Bad Astronomy column for Slate. Phil, if I'm not mistaken, this is your first time on our show. Welcome.
4: Hi, thanks. I think that's right. Everything Steve said <laughs> is right. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, we're done.
3: Thanks. You can find more about the story at Facebook.com CultureFest. Now moving on. Oh. Uh, there's no reason for me to say anything because you covered it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, a, that was a pretty good walkthrough of what's going on here. And before we even really get started on this, uh, as soon as I heard that, you know, we're going to think about aliens here, I knew that this is what the media was going to run with. So I jumped on this as quickly as I could. Basically, aliens are a last resort. Almost everybody, even the people advocating this idea of going and looking for maybe signals from aliens, their first choice is something natural, something non-artificial that we just don't understand just yet. Uh, it's just that looking for aliens is easy, and we'll probably learn other things while doing it, so it's not such a terrible idea.
3: Mm-hmm. And by inference, we've been able to eliminate all of the obvious other culprits, correct? That's that's why we're even opening an avenue onto the possibility of some kind of a superstructure.
1: Yeah, that's pretty fair, and I would stress the word obvious. You, you get a lot of mysteries in astronomy, um, basically because we're studying so many objects that at some point something is going to behave a little weirdly and you don't know exactly what it is and it may not fall into the same step as, as these other objects. So if you study a thousand-somethings, one of them is bound to be acting oddly and you don't want to immediately jump in there and say, oh, clearly this is alien, like every you know History Channel documentary, quote-unquote. More likely, it's just something we haven't thought of yet and that's usually well. Every time, that's what happens. It's just something, uh, it's a behavior, it's it's a couple of different things that are acting in concert that we just haven't thought of before. And that's almost certainly what's happening here.
2: Phil, you mentioning that every time before has turned out to be nothing makes me want to ask, what are the precedents for this? Are there previous (laughs) moments in the history of modern astronomy where the idea that something was an alien structure has been floated?
1: Yeah, in fact, although not necessarily an alien structure, it may just be aliens. In the 1960s, we started getting radio uh, telescopes surveying the sky, and these are just like this kind of telescopes you think of, except they're sensitive to radio waves, not optical light, the kind of light our eyes see. And they started finding these extremely well-behaved periodic signals, like a, like a, like a beat in, in pulses of, of radio waves. And they were so regular, so perfectly timed that it was impossible for anybody to think of what this could be except artificially constructed beacons. And then somebody said, well, in fact, we have these objects called neutron stars, which are extremely dense, rotate very rapidly, and they, they could be pulsing radio waves like this. And so it turns out that's what they turned out to be. And we have these objects we now call pulsars for that reason. Um, the very first one that was discovered was actually given the tag LGM as a joke, which stood for Little Green Men, uh, you know. And then somebody <laughs> figured out, no, it was natural. And there are other things like that, that there are objects that seem to give off way too much energy or a certain kind of light that we didn't think natural objects could produce, and it turns out, in rare cases under very extraordinary circumstances, yeah, this happens and. As we get better at observing the sky, we look at fainter objects, bigger areas of the sky, um, we start to find these weird anomalies. And, it, you know, the best thing to do is to say, what have we missed? And, and that is what's going on here.
4: Can I ask you something basic and possibly rudimentary about the nature of astronomic knowledge, Phil? Sure. So when you say, okay, we thought the beeps were, you know, in the 60s, people thought these beeps were so regular, they must be artificial and not natural. But then we figured out that it was pulsars. To me, the great mystery of being an astronomer seems to me to be the notion of, like, you're working in the Petri dish, but you've got tweezers that are 1500 light years long. Like, how how do we ascertain that? Like, is it just a constant... Set of proofs of ruling out possibilities until you. How do you ever reduce it down to just just the one? Okay, it's got to be the pulsars.
1: Um, That's a really good question, and in fact, this happens a lot when we have some new phenomenon. You basically just you pace back and forth. You drink a lot of coffee. You talk to your colleagues, and you say, "What can this be?" Now, in the case of this star that's fifteen hundred light years away, this mission Kepler is observing one hundred and fifty thousand stars and looking for these periodic dimming of the starlight. And we found quite a few. There have been thousands of stars that are found to have this periodic drop in their the, the amount of light they send us. And we can tell if it's a planet. There are all sorts of little pieces of evidence that let you know that this is a planet. The way the starlight drops, the amount it drops, how often it drops, and there are other things that can mimic this. You could have a star in the background That is itself a variable star changing its brightness, and that can mess up your observations. It could be a cloud of dust between us and that star that just happens to to pass in front. But these all have different signals. They they, they look different when you look at the data, and you can just tell. And so in the case of this star, we're not getting that periodicity that we want. You know, every time a planet passes in front of the star, we see a dip in the light. We're not seeing that. It's not like every three days or every eight days or every year. It's just happening at all these random intervals, and so it doesn't seem like it's a planet. What else could it be? Well, it could be asteroids maybe that have smacked into each other, so there's like this debris field around it, but then why are the dips in starlight so deep? Where you know, 20% of the starlight's being blocked. You need a huge object to do that, and, and nothing quite fits perfectly. There's this new idea that the star itself is a little weird, It spins really quickly, and when you spin something quickly, it flattens out. It gets what's called oblate. And that changes the way the starlight gets to us. And that idea kind of sort of works with this, but I still have a lot of problems with it. And so even though that might be what's going on, then there must be something else on top of that creating these weird pieces of evidence that we have, and nothing seems to quite fit. So, you know, hopefully, as we observe this thing more, we'll get more evidence, be able to eliminate more things, then say, oh, well, the only thing that's left is this, and then be able to, to go from there.
3: Mm-hmm. Phil, uh, is it the case that sometimes um, science fiction um, and or the overactive imagination actually play a role in furthering science in a way? But is it also the case that at some point, at some points it may be pushes people in the direction of a, of a um, pleasing absurdity and so for example in this specific <laughs> instance uh there is something called a dyson sphere why don't you tell us what that is and why it may have pl- implanted this idea in some people's imagination
1: right the, the the basic idea here is that as a civilization becomes more technological and spreads over a planet like ours has um, you need more power you just you have more Uh, machines, you have more transportation, it just needs more power all the time. Um, At some point, you can cover your entire planet in solar panels and nuclear plants and still not have enough power. So what do you do? Well, you go into space and you build solar panels that are a 1,000 miles on a side. Those pick up a lot more sunlight. You can beam that energy down to your planet. But as your power consumption gets higher and higher, eventually you're going to build bigger and bigger solar panels. And at some point, you may completely enclose the entire star. Now, this is technology on a terrifying scale. This is way beyond what we can do as a civilization right now. Uh, But that doesn't necessarily mean it's beyond other possible civilizations. Um, This idea has been around for a long time, and um, if, if you're in the middle of building one of these structures, you might have a bunch of these panels of different shapes that are under construction. And if they're orbiting the star and pass in front of the star, you might see that as a dip in the starlight. Uh, and so this isn't um, uh, something that is, is fantasy, uh, but you have to ask yourself, what are the odds? If we're looking at 100,000 stars, what are the odds that one of them happens to have an advanced civilization that happens to be, right now, building one of these megastructures that we happen to see? And it, and it strikes me as being pretty unlikely. Um, and so, but it, it, but it's interesting. you know. It kind of gets our, our juices going. So I understand the excitement about it, but we have to be careful and not let our imaginations run away with us.
3: Okay, but Phil, I need I, but Phil, I need you to lay a "woe, dude" moment on me and the listeners because it's not happening right now. It's happening fifteen hundred years ago, right?
1: Well, yeah. If they're looking at us, they're seeing us, you know, in the year whatever, five hundred A.D. So uh, they're not seeing an advanced technological civilization from us. But you know, fifteen hundred years—that's how long it takes the light to get from there to here. So if there are aliens building this structure, maybe they're communicating with each other using radio waves in their little spaceships, and so we might be able to pick up any leaked communications. The other idea is some people are saying maybe they would send us a signal. That strikes me as unlikely because, again, if they're looking at us, they're seeing us way pre-technological. We would never be able to pick up radio waves. Um, So I doubt even if we look, we're going to see something like a beacon. Um, but if you know, if it's if it's aliens, yeah, maybe maybe there's some other evidence that we can we can pick up by, by observing the star even more carefully. And if it's not aliens, even then we're gonna learn something cool. We're gonna we're gonna find out maybe more evidence that this thing really is busted up comets or something else, which, to be honest, still pretty awesome.
4: One question I have about this whole notion of speculation and kind of, you know, rational ruling out of potential alternatives until you get to the it's got to be aliens notion is it feels to me like if there are aliens out there, the thing they would be doing that would make us finally identify that they exist is not something that we would have already imagined in our own minds. It, It just seems so unlikely to me that their world would include suppositions that we ourselves have already made. To me, that's the thing that's most alien, I guess, about about this whole story is the notion of like, well, maybe they're building this thing we conceived of. And I get that, you know, in the laws of physics in our universe, such suppositions kind of make sense. But it, it, it does feel like the notion of rational speculation around potential alien behavior is very different than the notion of like the Star Trek type, they're just magical creatures whose laws might be totally different and for whom the rules might be totally odd, you know? I'm sputtering a little bit, but the notion that we might be able to precisely predict how a distant society might behave and that it would fit in with something we've already thought of in itself seems even more unlikely than these being aliens or not being aliens. Either the unlikely event that we are alone in the universe or the seemingly equally unlikely event that we are not. Um, I think I understand what you're saying. <laughs> oh, good, because I'm not sure I do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm just going to say whatever I want anyway, so Great. you can let me know if that even... She went artsy like you on said. you, Phil. <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, you know, if these aliens are communicating with each other through telepathy or have figured out how to drain energy out of the fabric of space-time or something like that, <laughs> uh, there's no way to predict you know, what they would be like, how, how we might be able to detect that any more than you, somebody from 18th century England might understand that we can communicate through magic boxes we hold in our hands. And, you know, they certainly wouldn't have predicted Twitter. So, uh, you know, starting with a very small amount of information and trying to make giant extrapolations is dangerous. All you can do is start with what you know, what you understand, and that is, here are the rules of the universe. And some things are easier than others. So, for example, creating radio waves is super easy. We were doing this in the 1920s um, with, with technology that we would consider today to be extraordinarily primitive. And yet radio waves don't take much energy. You can build giant radio telescopes without a whole lot of effort, and you can send signals clear across the galaxy this way. So if you're going to communicate uh, some way involving hyperspace or something weird that's science fiction, yeah, there's not much we can do about that. But if you're talking about technology, we understand, hey, radio waves is the way to go. Uh, so that's the kind of thing you look for. Um, if it turns out to be something completely different, we can't detect it anyway, so it doesn't matter. If, if, this, if a civilization needs more power um, and we don't know what sort of futuristic physics there might be in 100 or 200 or 1,000 years from now, go with what you know. And what we know is stars emit a huge amount of energy. If you can capture that, you get all this free energy that you can use way more than, I mean, millions of times more than our our planet needs. So uh, that's Mm. probably the way to look.
3: Mm. All right. Well, the name of the piece is, Did Astronomers Find Evidence of an Alien Civilization? Probably not, but still cool. It's by Phil Plate, who writes a really terrific science column for Slate called Bad Astronomy. Phil, thank you so much for coming on the show. I can't wait to have you back on.
1: Well, this was a lot of fun. It'll be fun to come back on, too. Thanks.
3: All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we got?
4: The Slate Culture Gap Fest is sponsored by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. 9,000 years, that is how long humans have been making wine and how long they've been confused about which wines to drink. I know that my own wine drinking is like... Uh, a, an archipelago of small little blobs of knowledge where I'm like, I figured out that I like Pinot Gris mm. from Oregon. Okay, I can order Pinot Gris from Oregon. And mm. I also usually like Chablis, so I could have Chablis sometimes. And, you know, it's like there's like little flashes of light where I, I seize upon something that I think I like, and then I order it consistently. And then if I'm confronted with a menu that doesn't have any of the little blobs of knowledge in my archipelago of wine knowledge, then I am a C- and a wash and there is much that I don't know. <laughs> Club W aims to change that. You can go to clubw.com and answer 6 simple questions and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you and then they send wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. Club W works directly with vineyards to cut out the middleman, which saves you money. And they even have a no risk 100% guarantee that you'll love what they send you. Well, guys, I have a confession to make. Club W sent me 4 bottles of wine which I've opted not to share with you so I would have more information about what their product is (laughs) in (laughs) preparation.
2: (laughs) The perks of the poobah. Yep. (laughs) Sorry, guys.
4: No wine for you. (laughs) And I enjoyed a very delicious Alsatian blend that's actually from Santa Barbara but used grapes commonly used in Alsace. It was super delish and I also had a ton of fun. A bunch of friends and I uh, opened the bottles this weekend and read off all the notes and tasted them in compared notes and it was just a kind of a fun excuse to talk about wine on purpose as opposed to having it be an unsung accompaniment to our evening. Right now, Club W is offering Gabfest listeners fifty percent off your first order when you go to clubw.com/culture. So stop wasting time and money messing around at retail stores and start drinking wine you know you're going to love. Just go to clubw.com/culture to get fifty percent off of your first order. That's clubw.com/culture. All right, Steve, what's next?
3: Uh, All right, Julia, thanks. Moving on. Bartleby the Scrivener is a short story by Herman Melville. It's about a rote copyist of legal documents who one day declares, I would prefer not to and refuses to continue working even though he remains in the office and indeed ends up living there. Who was Bartleby? What was the meaning of this strange and quiet act of defiance? And what was Melville up to in placing a quiet refusenik at the heart of capitalism as it entered its early Gilded Age? The story prefigures the work of Beckett and Kafka, those 20th century masters of irony and defeat. It is one of my eight or so favorite works of literature of all time. And now Slate has decided to annotate it, digitally annotate it. Andrew Kahn is an Interactive's editor for Slate.com. He joins us to talk about this project. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. What uh, bizarre hobby horse led you to pitch this idea to Slate, and what kind of an organization are they that they said yes?
5: (laughs) Well, I should say that Slate actually pitched this project to me. Uh, It it originated very early in my time at Slate, uh, when I was first interviewing for my job, with John Swansberg. Uh, and as, as we were talking, we happened upon the realization that both of us were obsessed with Bartleby the Scrivener. And John had wanted to be doing an annotated edition of it for a while and pitched it to me, and I was delighted. The final project is by no means comprehensive. That would just be impossible and take years and a PhD. But I'm hoping that it, it gives the reader some sense of the abundance of thought that has occurred around the text. Let's get to the abundance of thought
3: second and begin first with a little bit at least about the story. It's a provocative piece of literature that really stays with some people forever. Uh, Talk a little bit about why it has been that to you.
5: Yeah, well, it's a very strange story and it rejects many of the conventions of narrative literature. You usually expect some kind of character development or story arc. And really, what you you don't quite get that. You get an escalation. The situation gets worse and worse, but it gets worse because nothing is changing. It's almost more like a comedy sketch than it is like a narrative short story. You could say perhaps that the narrator undergoes some kind of emotional change, but that's debatable. It's very haunting. It manages to be both a little bit frightening and a little bit funny at the same time. It's very puzzling. It feels like, in some way, a follow-up and intensification of Moby Dick, which is enigmatic in a mm-hmm. slightly different way. And all of those qualities are somehow attractive.
2: Yeah, I think to me, maybe the enduring mystery of this story is, as you say, I mean, it's it's connected to this, this lack of narrative build, but it has to do with, it's almost as if, the story itself is a dead wall reverie, right, to use yeah. the phrase that keeps being used about Bartleby's penchant for staring out the office window onto this facing wall. It's it's this it's the story in which the narrator who's never named, who's the head of this law office, keeps coming up against the same dead wall, which is Bartleby's refusal to at first do most of the work that he's asked to do, everything except for copying, then to do any work at all, and subsequently to even leave the office, even after the lawyer himself has moved his office. He decides, if I can't get this guy to leave, I myself will leave. Bartleby still stays. And the mystery that the story is always revolving around, why is he doing this? What does he gain from it? What does it mean is never answered. And and so the story ends just stopped against that same dead wall.
5: Yeah, it, it doesn't really provide any resolution to that. And it, you know, it progresses, as you described, and ends with a very strange anecdote about Bartleby at the dead letter office in Washington, D.C., where all the undeliverable mail goes. And that anecdote is supposed to somehow clarify the story, but it really just deepens the mystery and adds just a weird, unexpected dimension to it that that doesn't really provide any of the answers.
2: Although the narrator adds that tag, that coda about the dead letter office, as if it illuminated something. Yeah,
5: that's the weirdest Mm -hmm. part.
4: Part of why I love the project of trying to annotate Bartleby in 2015 is I feel like the whole story itself is about the narrator's effort to attach meaning to this thing that is very impossible to comprehend. And that tag at the end, he's like, I I think I figured it out. I heard this thing about Bartleby's previous life, which is that he spent years and years opening these letters to dead people and having to reckon with all these lost hopes and dreams and loves. And so maybe that's an explanation. And he sort of knows it's not really, but he so wants there to be some way to read the confusing text of Bartleby himself that he's like, here's my meaning. And so I love that the the, the whole story is about efforts to ascribe meaning to something that is fundamentally mysterious and that you see that in the context of all of the different potential readings of the story in your annotation.
2: Yeah, right, that, right because the dead letter office is the place where letters go that have nowhere to go, right, that that can't end up any place, which is kind of what this story is. It's all these these currents of meaning flowing together and leading nowhere.
3: Mm. Andrew, let me ask you a question. I always just found the danger when I was teaching literature to undergraduates, The, the among the big dangers was the notion that literature was a code that could be cracked in some sense. And of course, this story, preeminent among works of literature, claims that that's, it's not true about people, it's not true about works of uh, writing, serious writing. Were you playing knowingly with an irony of making something that's about inexplicability explicable?
5: Yeah, I, I, I hope I was. I had written an undergraduate thesis about Bartleby, which was very much about code breaking and trying to break the code and interpret the symbols and find a stable unitary meaning for the story. And one reason I was so grateful for this project was that it offered me the opportunity to kind of do a do-over and reconsider my own Ahabian tendency to try to find one elusive meaning for the story. Wait, what tendency? Ahabian, like Captain Ahab hunting the whale. Got you. Lovely. Yeah.
4: (laughs) I'm so interested to hear that, Andrew. So, I mean, I do love that the the interactive as you've designed it allows for a multiplicity of interpretations and even lets the reader kind of toggle and say, I want to, I want to read all the annotations that have to do with the potentiality of Bartleby as a queer text. I want to read all of the annotations that read it as a portrait of of kind of class conflict and labor politics in New York and in the mid-19th century. But I'm curious to know your own journey, like which of the um, potential interpretations seemed more interesting to you on this second consideration?
5: Yeah, well, when I first heard the story and I listened to an audio book of it, I had been reading a lot of queer theory. I was at that moment in my college experience, uh, and it struck me as an almost completely explicit text about a homoerotic relationship. That's not a particularly popular interpretation among academics. It's mentioned every so often, and there are some papers that focus on that interpretation. Uh, But that was what stood out to me when I first heard it.
2: I wonder, Andrew, having done this, and I think you said at the beginning of this this segment and you really sensed this reading, the story is that there's an infinite number of other possible annotations that could be made, that this is kind of the sketch of a possible annotated Bartleby. But I wonder what you think, in a more general sense, the interactive reading of literature, brings to the experience that that wasn't there before. And connected to that, would you think that this would be a a good format for someone who had never read the story? I mean, this is such a common story to assign in high school and college classes that a lot of people coming to it will probably be rereading Bartleby. But if someone was reading it for the first time, do you think that an interactive reading would be as valuable as as isolating yourself with the story and then interacting later?
5: I hope so. In designing the interactive I was trying to make sure that the annotations were visible and available and easy to access, but not overwhelming. So I settled on this kind of foggy aesthetic where you can see the beginnings of all the annotations, but if they're long, they sort of fade away. Right, in and a you mist. need to
2: make the choice to read the rest. You have
5: to make a choice to read it. I'm hoping that with Bartleby itself, these annotations encourage a kind of playfulness. And though it would be too much to say that the annotations are themselves a game, there is a sort of video gamey element to it, which I hope gets the reader in a sort of playful state of mind, instead of the Captain Ahab state of mind, where you sort of visualize one particular interpretation and feed it as you go down the story.
4: I had to read it twice. Like, I started to read it and started to toggle the annotations and interact with them as I was reading it, but it had been so long since I read the story, and the text of the story itself has its own, like, rhythm and power that I was like, you know what, I want to, like, I want to get the text, the pure text first, and then I want to go back. So I I read it, and then I went back through and read the annotations in order, and I love doing it that way. But I do think that is one of the challenges with, with using uh, interactivity as a way to open up a text, because you you have to design it for so many different modes of encountering. And I'm yeah. sure there are other readers who'd either read it more recently. I mean, there were a bunch of like, English teachers tweeting the day we published it and saying, oh my God, just in time. I assigned this last <laughs> week. Fantastic. Um, y- you know, that, that, that different people would encounter it different ways.
5: Another, another challenge with annotating this particular text is that many critics have focused only on the motto, I prefer not to and haven't really engaged in a broader reading of it. There's a whole European political philosophy tradition now stemming from the phrase... Well, that's an exaggeration. But there are a lot of philosophers who have written about the implications of I prefer not to, just sort of as one isolated statement without the context of the rest of the story. And some of the material that I chose to bring in in the annotations works like that. Some of it is really just about the phrase, I prefer not to, and Bartleby's demeanor. Some of it engages with other parts of the text as well. But one of the challenges was actually choosing which snippets of Bartleby to annotate and trying to find where to attach the annotations onto the text, since so many of them deal so exclusively with just the atmosphere of the story.
2: And something else that doesn't quite make it into the annotations, although you do talk about Bartleby as a figure for Melville himself, is the strange, eerie prescience of this story about Melville's life to come after he wrote the story. Because this story is written, it's 1852, right? It's at the very beginning of, of Melville's, I don't know what you'd call it, but his own period of kind of failure as a writer, in which eventually he stopped writing completely, or stopped writing for publication anyway. He did write this extremely long narrative poem called Clorel that was published to zero acclaim or attention.
5: Yeah, no, there there was certainly a long withdrawal that happened. I talk a little bit in the introduction to the story about the catastrophe that had happened in Melville's literary life before it was published. His previous novel, Pierre, had been a total disaster there had been headlines that said Herman Melville crazy. That was literally one entire <laughs> oh God, that is not what you want to open headline. the paper
2: to. Herman Melville crazy. Yeah,
5: and all of his literary allies, critics and friends and writers, had sort of drifted away. So he was very lonely. There's a whole school of thought that thinks about Bartleby as like a Melville temper tantrum and a story that's meant to frustrate readers, frustrate an audience, set up expectations and totally fail to resolve them.
4: I don't buy that theory.
5: It's too beautiful and complete. That's a very reductive theory. Yeah,
4: but I. But I. But wrote I, it I, just to piss us all off for I, 150
5: it's years. N- it's not an
4: angering enough text for that to be to, for for that to be his
3: aim. Well, Andrew Kahn, um, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about Bartleby the Scrivener and your uh, lovely annotation of a digital annotation of it on Slate. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right, moving on coming up endorsements, but first a word about a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater.
0: Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank, and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s.
1: Have you listened to it yet?
0: Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, Um, sounds like a no.
1: Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing.
0: To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message... On iTunes.
3: All right, well now is the moment in our show where we endorse day na 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 not not now what do we have? <laughs>
2: This week, I may be doing this endorsement just so I can say the name of this person, because it's so much fun to say. But I'm going to endorse the work of the musician, the composer, Zez Confrey, who is a (laughs) a, a ragtime, a composer of novelty ragtime songs. And the way I came across the music of Zez Confrey is that I've been watching a lot of silent films online as research for my book that I'm writing. I'm writing this Buster Keaton project. And so I'm having all this wonderful fun watching these silent films, but most of them are posted without any music, which of course was not the way they were watched at the time and not the way they should be watched. And usually when I come across that, an old silent movie that I need to tag some music to, I'll just open up a window with Scott Joplin because Scott Joplin sounds great with everything and it's of the time and seems suitable. But I was sort of searching around because I've listened to a, lo- a lot to the greatest hits of Scott Joplin in the last few weeks. And, uh, and I came across this other rag composer, a little bit younger than Scott Joplin, but clearly influenced by him, writing things that are a little bit less serious, maybe more, more silly. But he, he was a big hit maker in his day, was Zez Confrey. And uh, <laughs> Confrey is best known for his biggest hit, Kitten on the Keys, which was actually inspired by a cat walking across his grandmother's piano keys. But you can also listen to such charming numbers as Ragdoll Dimples. Sitting on a Log, Petting My Dog, Giddy Diddy, or the three-part Wisecracker Suite, which consists of three parts Yokel Opus, Mighty Lackawanna, and The Sheriff's Lament. So I think you get the idea of these songs. They're they're very sort of tinkly piano roll type music. They're tons of fun. And if you need any silent film accompaniment at your computer, go to Zez Confrey. I feel like this might be the most Dana thing (laughs) I've ever seen.
4: Her eyes are like alight with glee. Her fingers are like (laughs) fluttering over her keyboard. She is so ecstatic about Zez Confrey. Well, I mean, part of
2: the fun of researching the teens and 20s is just that the names are incredible. The titles are incredible. Just pop culture in the teens and 20s was so unbelievably charming that there's just always this density of great words flying at you. So Zez is one of those wonderful words. I just found him on YouTube, but, you know, I think I'm sure that Zez Confrey albums are out there for the taking as well. I I also just love that Dana's,
4: Dana posits, Dana's endorsement posits that all of our listeners have moments when they just need ragtime accompaniment. So it's just like my light, like there's just something missing.
3: When I'm hanging from a giant clock face, for example, or rescuing the heroin from the railroad tracks.
2: Just call on Zez, although Scott Joplin can never yeah, do you wrong. A little zez.
3: Also, I love that we've arrived at the moment in the history of endorsements where we're just making shit up. <laughs> <laughs> good point, good point. Uh, on that note, Julia Turner, what do you have?
4: All right, I today want to endorse the ThermoPen. Do you guys have excellent meat thermometers in your possession? I don't think
2: I even have a subpar meat thermometer in my possession. Do you have your how's your meat thermometer game?
3: <laughs> I mean, you're just you're fucking begging me for just the lowbrow. The of double entendre. The two time lowbrow rejoinders. I don't know what you to. Re- or as be they say, rejoindre. I'm not going to give you the rejoindre you're looking for, <laughs> uh, Julia, but I have a fucking awesome meat thermometer now that you
4: ask. <laughs> all right, Finally well, calibrated. If if all of you. are... Right, no, I
3: cannot
4: go
2: there.
4: <laughs> um, well, for those of you who have meat thermometer envy, uh,
2: and. <laughs> On the hunt, she's paved her path, and she's just merrily marching down it. (laughs) There's
4: no other. There's no other route.
3: Meat thermometer in hand. (gasps) God.
2: (laughs) Anyway, for those less well endowed
4: with meat thermometers than Steve, (laughs) I learned about the ThermoPen from the Food Lab, which is the great blog of J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, who is a graduate of the Cook's Illustrated School of Cooking Nerdery, but has gone off on his own and created his own empire. He's the author of the great steak with both oil and butter recipe that I mentioned on our Slate Plus segment a couple weeks ago about Steve abandoning his vegetarianism. But cooking meat has... Oh, I, I love making pasta with sauce. I'm am I'm an excellent maker of pasta with sauce, but cooking any large hunk of meat Always is agonizing to me because it's so hard to figure out when it's done and when it's overcooked. It's such a pain. And I I become my usually calm and cool demeanor utterly evaporates at the end of a meat cooking process. And I become a bundle of indecisive nerves. And I open the oven and I shut it and I look at the thing and I put the meat thermometer in and uh, I'm so confused. And... J. Kenji Lopez-Alt believes that this is because we all suffer from bad meat thermometer-itis because most modern meat thermometers that you can buy for 10 bucks on Amazon take a while to come up to the temperature, so you put them in. You can't tell if you're still rising. By the time it is still rising, you've like let all the heat out of the oven. Uh, and he recommends an instant-read meat thermometer, particularly this one, the ThermoPen, which you seem to only be able to buy from a British website for a passel of money. However... It is truly instant. In fact, when you unsheath it, it measures the temperature of the air around you. If you touch it with your fingertips, it instantly warms up a little bit to the temperature of your body. Uh, and you can, can very swiftly determine how well your meat is cooked, thus allowing you to daringly cook it slightly rarer than you would if you were a more worried sort. I highly recommend the ThermoPen, particularly as you anticipate potential turkey cooking endeavors in future weeks.
2: I just want to say that J. Kenji Lopez-Alt is up there with Zez Country as far as good names and this
4: endorsement saying <laughs> He always goes by his full name in my household because it is such a great name to say.
3: As I said, we're just making shit up. But this also raises the interesting question of whether you, Julia Turner, could fire yourself, Julia Turner, for an HR violation.
4: <laughs> I'll take it up with HR.
3: All right. I am going to surprise myself with my endorsement this week, and I'm going to endorsed going to see Welcome to Night Vale live, which is what I did this past weekend with my 12 year old daughter who adores really cherishes the show. And we discovered it was playing in Montreal, one of my favorite cities to hop in the car and drive to because it's only four hours from my front door and probably um, there's another country north of here where they speak French and there are cobblestone streets. But anyway, I, and I went with her to the show mostly to delight her and ended up delighting myself immeasurably. It was, they, they really put on a great show. It's impro- It seems improbable, right? The format doesn't lend itself. It's one newsreader essentially, but they work with that beautifully. They really freaking nail it. They they make a show out of something that doesn't seem it should be a show and they send their fans home in a genuine euphoria and they do it beautifully so if you're a fan of welcome to nightvale or if you're the parent of a fan it's a wonderful night out and you leave with extremely warm feelings even if the show meant very little to you to begin with but if it means something to you or someone that you love it's beyond worth it to go and see all right well dana thank you so much what a pleasurable show this was
2: as ever steve
3: julia thanks so much that was a delight (laughs) thanks steve You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. That, that was fun. We'll see you soon.
4: Hi, I'm Julie Lithcott-Hames, the host of Getting In. I'm the former dean of freshmen at Stanford and the author of How to Raise an Adult. Getting In is a new podcast from Panoply, following a group of high school seniors through the college admission process. And right now is crunch time, especially for students applying early decision.
2: You know, when you put it all together, it's a lot. I don't really sleep. I drink a lot of black coffee. But, you know, I'm, I'm stressed, but I'm, I could be worse. I could be bored.
4: That's what you'll hear on the new episode of Getting In from Panoply, available on iTunes,
2: Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app.